Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Shares for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. If you're an active investor, you're an active motor racer, you have a team behind you, so you've got a team of mechanics. These days, when you really get into stuff like Formula One, you've got a lot of the, the analytics, you've got a lot of that. So you've got real-time data of how your car's going out on the track, you're talking with the driver, he or she are making corrections. So the parallel would be you've got an investment team, highly paid, getting a lot of information, processing that information very quickly in real time, giving messages back to the investment team to nuance and adjust the portfolio. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. We hear a lot about ETFs these days, but Australians have been investing in things called LICs for much longer. Joining me today is Ian Irvine, Chief Executive Officer, Listed Investment Companies and Trust Association. Hi there, Ian. G'day, Phil. Good to be with you again. Yeah, thanks for coming back again. LICAT represents the interests of listed investment companies, LICs, listed investment trusts, LITs, and investors to protect, develop and grow the sector through advocacy and education. However, before talking about LICs, we're going to go back to some Share Investing 101. Let's kick off with some of what you believe to be the key investment principles when starting out in the markets. Well, I think uh, when you start out, this may be hard to say when we're talking about a long-term horizon, which is what investing is. Mm. Think about the end game. How is this going to end up? What do I want to look like in, could be 40 years? So when we start talking about a superannuation investment, for example, we're actually planning for 40 years ahead when your investments turn into income-producing outcomes for you as a retiree. So how do I want to invest? What do I want to invest in now that can transition through that course of time to that end game, my retirement? That's, mm. that's a superannuation example. 
So too, if you're saving or investing for a particular purpose, what's my time horizon? How much will I need? Is it all going to be through growth or do I need some income along the way? Or will I convert the income I receive into growth by reinvesting? So sit down, do some planning, maybe take a piece of paper, draw a timeline. I'm here. I want to get to there. Mm -hmm. Here's the picture in my mind of what that looks like. What investments do I wish to make? What's the income I need? What would be the product structures I use? Those sorts of things. And that sounds a little daunting. It is. It's really daunting for some people, I think, you know, it's um, because especially like product structure. Yeah. 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 And one of the best ways to do that is start with self-education. Pretty much what we're doing here now, and to your listeners, congratulations for tuning in. Start to get familiar. If you're unfamiliar with investing, start to become more familiar with the daily news. Um, We're all talking right now about interest rates. Everyone knows where that's at. Mm -hmm. But it's surprising to learn not many people know, I'm told, what actual interest rates apply to their savings and deposit accounts. Mm, Everyone's mm. pretty keen on, I own a home, this is what it's costing me. We hear about fixed rate loans and things changing in the not-too-distant future when some of those roll off. But listening to those sorts of things then broaden your horizons in terms of the input you're receiving from a number of sources. Mm. Uh, Not just relying upon your friends or a particular media commentator. Always listen to a few. So educate yourself. Maybe take some online courses. Certainly keep tuning into your podcast, Phil. <laughs> Thanks for the plug <laughs> Always welcome to help because I think they're very helpful in this regard. So get an idea of what you're doing before you race off and make your first investment decision. Mm. In your notes, you mentioned compounding and mm-hmm. understanding about compounding. And one of the things I've been playing around with recently is you go online and you look up compounding calculator. But I've actually found that future value calculators are much more useful in these terms. Explain how future value works and um, how you can sort of plug into that. Well, I think you may be talking to about net present value. So what's the value in the future of a dollar today? So that takes into account the very real circumstances we find ourselves in at the moment, inflation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It may adjust it for a a more moderate and longer term inflation rate, 3-4% which is where the Reserve Bank targets. We all know where it is I thought it was 2 to 3%. Well, <laughs> That's changing all the time. I, I think <laughs> coming back from the, the high sevens down to yeah. that sort of range is probably appropriate. So there you go. Um, mm. We have a different view on what it is, and I would, I'd, I'd defer to you because you're more in touch with this. So get to know what the Reserve Bank's target rate is uh, to understand that. Mm. So future value is around taking a dollar today and applying those sorts of metrics to it in the future, and it will depreciate mm. by those rates. So you've actually got to earn more then it depreciates over time. Yeah. Just coming back to compounding, again, as a starting point for a bit of self-education, I always find it's very interesting to do this calculation for yourself. You're right. There's plenty of uh, calculators online. But I often use an example, and this is all fictitious, hypothetical, not guaranteed. Mm. It's a rough illustration. And when I say rough, I mean really rough. It takes an example of two people, aged same, at 20, One decides that they will uh, put aside $100 a week, Mm. $5,200 a year, and at the end of that year, one interest payment of 5%. Next year, they reinvest that interest payment, so it goes up by that $5,200 plus another $5,200 and interest and interest and interest and interest. Mm. So they do that for 20 years until they turn 40. Their friend, who was 20 back when they started investing, has decided they won't start investing until they turn 40. But to catch up, they're going to invest twice as much. So instead of investing $5,200 a year on mm. a weekly, over 52 weeks, they invest 10400 
The other person stops investing at 40, but still leaves the money where it is, earning the 5%. The other person starts when they turn 40, but investing twice as much, earning 5%. Mm. They're now both 60. Who has the most money? <laughs> I'm guessing the 40-year-old, when the one who started the, when they were 40. Uh, no, no. Do the calculation. Oh, okay. I'd have to do that online. <laughs> but even do it in a simple um, Excel spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. But as I said, very basic. It's yeah. all about the principle, not so much the outcome, but the principle, the outcome is, yeah. will, will be a surprise. So risk-reward is another aspect of this as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And judging, judging your risk. And I don't think listeners often understand what their conception of risk is as opposed to what the financial services yep. definition of risk is because risk in the industry is a measure of volatility, isn't That's it? That's true. It's not how much your money is at risk, which is what general punters would think of yep. as being the definition of risk. It, it is, um, and the financial markets do talk about volatility and over the last few years we've seen a bit. Mm. Um, 2022 finished on a relatively flat note and... 2023 started on a relatively quick start uh, and that sort of reflects the volatility so that that's across the market but also some particular sectors can be quite volatile in other words their valuations share prices if you will move up and down quite dramatically from my perspective as an investor um, it's the i can sleep at night factor that's a measure of risk how do i feel comfortable about sleeping well at night it's to have a, a well diversified portfolio of investments through a range of asset classes, typically cash, equities, Australian equities, global equities, property, be that listed property or real property where I own, not my own home, but an investment property. So I've got the right proportion and there's no right proportion that can just say this is the same for everyone. So again, it's important to get the right advice, self-education, understand what you feel comfortable with in terms of how much cash do I need, which is generally considered to be lower risk um, and, and the property market, if I'm invested directly in the property market, again, as we know right now, we're seeing some volatility there as, share, as, as prices come off. So what's the right proportion across those asset mixes? And that will change over time. Again, the end game, um, if I set myself up with that portfolio across a range of asset classes at the outset, over the term of my 40, 50-year investment time horizon, that will change. Mm. Closer to the conclusion of that timeline as I move into retirement, I might be looking to have more in cash. Self-managed super funds, oddly enough, were roundly criticised for holding too much cash. And that tended to come from the professional market that always wanted to be fully invested in the assets, Mm. not necessarily just for their own benefit and reasons. But self-managed super funds do hold a lot of cash because they're considering about, I will need some money to pay my obligations to my uh, members and those that are in retirement, as well as my obligations in terms of the cost of running the fund. So they tend to hold a little bit more. Right now, as interest rates are increasing on deposits, some of them are smiling a little more so than they may have been over the last 10 years or decade or so, because they're getting a better return than they had on their cash. Mm. So it's become an important asset class in terms of liquidity, easy to get in, easy to get out, as well as earning. At the other end of that spectrum, speaking of liquidity, property, real property, Houses, investment properties, units, and that sort of thing. A little more more difficult to get in and out in a hurry if you need to. And active and passive investing, what's the difference? 
I mean, I've seen your notes here. It's being the driver or being driven or just being um, a passenger. Yeah, I use mm. it, I use that example and there's no... There's no because we both love cars as we well. We do, we do. <laughs> um, we, we'll talk more about BMW versus Skoda in a moment. Perhaps <laughs> off air. Active and passive, there's no right or wrong answer here. It's a combination. And again, it's what makes me sleep comfortably at night is, is always a good indicator. But passive tends to reflect an investment that follows an index or tracks an index. Um, obviously, everyone's, most people listening, even if they're not familiar with investing, are familiar with seeing the nightly news where the ASX 200 index is up or down. Mm. That index is tracked by a number of passive investments. So you'll always get the index return. An active investor, an investment or a manager would seek to do better than that. And there's arguments about the cost of that vis-a-vis the chances of that, all those sorts of things. Hence, it comes back to getting the right mix and melding it uh, together and your, and your level of comfort. But a, an active manager should do better uh, after their fee. So I'll give you an example. Uh, exchange-traded funds or ETFs are a very good example of passive investing. Most ETFs available to Australians here and listed overseas, particularly in the US, track an index. Therefore, they're passive investments. In Australia, the largest ETF uh, tracks the 300 index, and it has a management expense cost of about 10 points, 0.1 of 1%. Uh, it has about $10 billion in fund, funds under management, so it's large. It gets mm. a lot of efficiencies out of that, but it will always give you the outcome of the S&P ASX 300 index, both in terms of growth, ups and downs, and income and franking. Compare that with the largest listed investment company, AFIC, which is also about $10 billion. It's an active manager. It doesn't hold 300 stocks or cover 300 stocks as that ETF I mentioned does. Uh, It would probably hold somewhere between 60 and 100 at any one time. Comparing its MEA, it's a management expense ratio of 0.16, 0.16 of 1%. You're getting an active manager that's been doing this for 50 or more years uh, across a range of stock picks that they think will do well over the long term. So they may not hold the 14% that BHP accounts for of the index. They may hold a lesser or a greater amount. That's their investment management decision. And that describes to some extent what active management is. You have active managers through an investment committee taking active management decisions about where they will invest, how long they will invest, and also working with the investments in which they invest. So if they're investing in companies that are listed on the ASX, they're generally considered large institutional investors and they have some involvement with the management team and they understand it more deeply than perhaps what a lot of investors would do what's actually going inside the company, for example. What's the difference between an actively managed fund, a managed fund, and say an actively managed LIC? Um, it's probably the structure. Um, mm. They are both active, as I just described, so they're choosing the components of their portfolios. They have the similarities in terms of their style of management. It's the product structure that's a different piece. Listed investment companies are what we refer to as closed-end structures, like any other company listed on the ASX, BHP, Woolworths, Westpac, for example. There's a limited number of shares or units on issue at any point in time. They're traded amongst other investors who like to buy in or like to get out, and they reach a price and agree that on market, if you like, and they cross and they, I buy, you get my money, you receive units as, as the purchaser. 
uh, an e active ETF is like another ETF or a managed fund which we were just talking about. It's open-ended. So when you want your money invested, you provide a dollar amount to the manager. They then invest that in their underlying strategy. On the other hand, when you want your money back, you go to the manager and they either sell units to actually find the money to pay you back, or there's other money coming in and they cross. So money in, it's more than we're actually redeeming. I can redeem. But if I'm, if there's, a, for example, more people wanting to get out, they will be selling the underlying units. So the assets under management's like a balloon that's expanding and contracting? Exactly. Yeah, according to how many people are. So oddly enough, yeah. that's, the, that's the contradiction. Uh, one of the key tenets of active management is a stable pool of capital mm. or thumb. Mm. I can then go and enact my strategy in confidence that I'm not going to be tapped on the shoulder and people wanting to take their money out. That happens with an ETF. That happens mm. with an active ETF as well. Whereas the closed-in LIC has that stable pool of capital. This allows them to enact strategies that they can build over time and build over time for the long term. So it's, it's coincidental with their long-term investment management thinking as well as their long-term investors' investment thinking. Mm. So when we started this conversation about the end game, you almost could say I need to be agnostic to what's happening daily. I've made a right decision to invest in this investment with this investment manager for the long term. My objective is way over there. What happens today in terms of weather is relatively unimportant. Keep an eye on it, but it's relatively unimportant because the climate that I'm looking for over the 40-year period mm. is what I'm trying to experience, and that's the larger picture. If you've chosen investments in closed-end structures that are enacting strategies for the long term, that's probably more appropriate than choosing active managers in an open-ended fund uh, where money can flow out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Are you confused about how to invest? LifeSherpa can ease the burden of having to decide for yourself. Head to LifeSherpa.com.au to find out more. LifeSherpa, Australia's most affordable online financial advice. Twenty twenty three is the hundredth birthday anniversary of the first LIC in Australia, and yep. I know it wasn't an LIC. You've explained to me that it wasn't an LIC at that particular stage. But um, tell us about that particular LIC and some of the other more venerable yep. LICs. Yeah, um, they're all venerable, Phil. <laughs> uh, uh, the the entity we're talking about is Whitefield, mm. and uh, it will turn um, one hundred years old in March twenty twenty three. Yes, for the first few years, going back 100 years or so, it was traded over the counter by stockbrokers before it listed. It listed a few years after it started activities in 1923. So what was it? What was it considered at that stage? Um, what did they talk about? I think what you see now is a lot of companies that actually um, 
before they come to the market for an IPO, mm. actually build up some trading history. Right. And yeah. they get investors on board. So you're not starting from scratch. Uh, you've got some money already invested. You then broaden the pool to which you make your investment offer, mm. and they come they come in in that capital raising. So it, it helps to build your scale uh, based on recent past performance. So you've got a track record. We all know past performance is not a guarantee of the future, but people can see the cut of your jib for one of I'm not a sailor, but I'll use that term. <laughs> yep. um, for example. So it took a few years to get to the listing, and it was an amalgamation of a number of companies. There's an article on our website. Oh, we'll point to it in the blog post, yeah. Lookout.com.au, that's probably the the Whitefield story. Uh, There's an article on our website which actually covers off the Whitefield story, which is quite interesting in itself. uh, I think we've had discussions in the past about the history of companies, Mm. but it it had a a great history. It's interesting enough to think people say, oh, LIC is old and little fuddy-duddy, should I say, could I say? Well, I think a lot of younger investors don't even know what they are. They've never even heard of them, you know, because they're so inundated with ETFs. Very true. Well, I can tell you this. um, ETFs are not the new LICs, mm. they are mm. quite different. Mm. Um, mm. And they all have different features, benefits and outcomes. It, it may be interesting to note that a listed investment company like Whitefield, which is 100 years old, has really actually kept pace with what's going on. It's quite dynamic in the way it makes its investment decisions. Mm. And in that article I referred to, the, the managing director, Angus Glusky, refers to how investment management techniques have changed over time. Back in the day from just rule of thumb and ratios through spreadsheets, big big outcome to mm. now the digital age and Whitefield through its hundred years has really kept pace with those changes so it uses a lot of digital knowledge not exactly AI but there's a whole raft of information that even an Excel spreadsheet could never accommodate. And what are some of the other companies like the, your Affix and Argos as well? Yeah um, similar to Whitefield but a little larger that $10 billion company I referred to was Affix, Australian Foundation Investment Company. Actually the Affix stable consists of four Mm. each with slightly different strategies. So Mirabuka, Dejeroa and Amsel, along with AFIC or AFI as its ticket code. Uh, they run different strategies across that portfolio. Very large, very stable, Melbourne-based business. Argo started in South Australia, and I think if you dig deep enough, you find Dodd Bradman was a company secretary at one stage. Interesting. It too runs two funds. Uh, one's an Aussie equity fund. The other is a global infrastructure fund, both using the LIC structure. The thing about listed investment company structures is because they're companies listed in Australia, making profit in Australia, paying tax in Australia, they can also pay fully frank dividends. So when you talk about an asset class such as infrastructure, they can pay a fully frank dividend. Others in in that grouping... So just to back up on that, so if you were in another structure investing in global infrastructure, you wouldn't be able to get franking credits? No, unless... So if you're investing in an open-ended fund over asset classes such as um, listed infrastructure, mm. that, that where there's just cash money coming back into the structure, yep. it's, it's paid out as cash. Mm-hmm. So too with global equities. So one of the larger ETFs available through the ASX is the S&P 500. There's no franking paid with the S&P 500. However, if you chose to use a listed investment company that has an underlying uh, global equity strategy, Platinum, Wilson Global, for example, they're companies listed in Australia, making profits, paying tax in Australia, therefore you can actually receive a fully frank dividend on your investment in global equities because the company's based here. Their stock and trade is investing offshore. Mm. So you notice I did say you can receive 
dividends are not guaranteed, the franking's not guaranteed. There's a bit more work to do there too, and perhaps understanding some of the more accounting details behind it. Mm. Um, others in that stable uh, of um, AFIC and Argo, uh, two based, man- same manager based Melbourne companies, AUI, Australian United Investments, and DUI, Diversified United Investments. AUI, as the name suggests, Invest in Australia, Diversified United Investments, has a more global approach. Brickworks, or now known as BKI Limited, is a is a no, not. I think it came to market around about two thousand and three, but it also exhibits those characteristics. Uh, on the other side of things, I've mentioned Wilson Asset Management. Jeff Wilson runs a range of listed investment companies, all company structures, and those attendant benefits that I've referred to, and dividends and franking credits. And there's a range of other managers. Uh, again. Back to the Lickat website, we list all of our members. You can see their size, and you actually click through their logos to find out a lot more about the companies, best said by them. Mm. So is that the best place for someone to go and see which are the LICs? Not, obviously not which are the best ones, but a list of LICs. I mean, there's many places where you can go and see what ETFs are available, but for LICs, Lickat's the best place to go? Yeah, it's a good place, good starting point. Mm. Um, we, we have two places we can go. We have a full list of all 95 listed investment companies and listed investment trusts, mm. so you know who they are. And for our members, which account for around about 78 to 80% of the market value, we have a, a link through to their own websites. That's where you can go and do their own investigation. But back to where we started, just don't go to one source, go mm. to a number of sources. So um, there's a number of other websites. The ASX is always great. Um, in fact, the ASX is doing a bit of work on its uh, listed investment companies and listed investment trust education hub fancy name for a web landing page a lot more information around listed investment companies and trust there in association with the anniversary of whitefield is it true that many lic's will also take active management roles in that in the companies that they're investing in yeah they um they're like on a number of levels but they're genuinely interested in their um their investments so it is quite active in that sense. Very much so. Mm. Um, they're active on a number of levels. So, so they, they would they would typically once a company and it makes an announcement if it's with within the listed investment company's portfolio in some significance, that company may even actually call on the on the listed investment company, and what they call an analyst call. So they're going to come and present what they've already made available to the market. There's no no new news, but they'll actually present that in some uh, in some form to the listed investment company. And the company can actually, the LIC, can actually ask questions. And they may well be not just about the financial performance, but about the ESG performance, about other things that the company is doing in the social environment and, and, and governance perspective. LICs tend to be particularly focused on the governance aspects, so getting companies to do the right things in the right ways and still run a good business. Uh, so they get actively involved in that. To some extent, I'm not totally familiar with this, but active ETFs may do the same thing, though I think not. They tend to be more investment-oriented on the underlying, making sure that they can deliver on the the outcoming. So what's the difference between an LIC and an LIT? Again, it's it's back to structure. So company, and Mm -hmm. we talk through companies are able to pay fully frank dividends because they're in Australia making profits, paying tax. Uh, an, An LIT is the same as a managed fund in the sense that it's a trust, but a closed-end trust. So it retains its capital, but the tax outcomes are different, but similar to a managed fund. All income needs to be paid out within the financial year. So they pay distributions, whereas a company pays dividends. 
distributions are typically not franked. There could be a franking component which may arise from I've invested in a company that's actually paid a franked dividend and that franking credit will pass right through to the end investor. But they're untaxed in the hand of the investor. Don't get too excited. You still have to pay tax. Mm. But that tax is paid in the tax return wash-up. So uh, as opposed to a company has already paid some tax on your behalf, you get credit for the tax already paid, and that can be offset against other tax obligations or added to your tax obligation, depending on where you sit in terms of your marginal rate. Whereas for a trust, it all comes into your bank account, but you work it out at, uh, at uh, tax time. Okay, I'm going to throw a question to you without notice. As motor racing fans, ah. um, what parallels do you think can be drawn between motor racing and investing? And I was thinking about this before. For me, it's like having the most frictionless lap around a circuit. It's getting rid of as much friction as possible to have the fastest lap. Yeah, that's a good analogy, Phil. Um, uh, yeah, motor racing uh, is, a, is a good example. Um, there are risks with motor racing, as there is, as there is, with, is in investing. investing yeah. <laughs> so let's be cognizant of that. Um, but if you're an active investor, you're an active motor racer, you have a team behind you, so you've got a team of mechanics. These days, when you really get into stuff like Formula One, you've got a lot of the, the analytics, you've got a lot of that. So you've got real-time data of how your car's going out on the track. You're talking with the driver. He or she are making corrections. Uh, you've got the telemetry. The telemetry. Mm-hmm. You're, you're way ahead of me there, Phil. <laughs> um, so you, and then you come into the pits, and it's all about how quickly you can actually change the tyres and refuel. So the parallel would be you've got an investment team, highly paid, getting a lot of information, processing that information very quickly in real time, giving messages back to the investment team to nuance and adjust the portfolio. If you need to change... You come into the pits, let's do this quickly, let's not protract it, we've made a decision, enact it, but let's not alert the market to that, how are we going to do this? So there's a lot of comparisons there as well. The other one I like to use is sort of, let's come back to you and I, I'm not a motor racer, I know we've got an interest, um, but uh, it's about driving your own car or taking public transport. Now I'm a fan of both. Um, My car's a 22 year old BMW, but it has a manual gearbox, a little unusual these days. I make the analysis or the comparison is that a passive index tracking is always on the tracks. So it will only go from wherever you live to Central Railway Station that way most times. If there's an interruption, you're stopped. If you're in your car driving, you can actually be alerted, maybe through a GPS, there's a roadblock up ahead. You can actually take a detour and get around it. Um, You can also choose the speed. Or the gear in which you want to you want to travel, make your own investment decisions that way. So I think there's nothing the matter with always using public transport. In fact, for many instances, that's the way to go. For many instances in investing, that's the way to go. If you want to track the gold price or a currency price, that really makes a lot of sense. But if you want to actively choose a bunch of stocks and don't feel comfortable doing it yourself, getting a professional manager to actually help you drive the car or perhaps drive the car for you. Are you going to take a taxi, an Uber, or some other form of hire car to actually help you, and that's the investment manager or advisor I'm talking about, to negotiate and you just sit in the back seat or sit alongside the driver, watch the speedo and a few other things, or let let them do it all. So you've got a whole range of options that actually we can draw analogies with, with motorsport, as well as just driving your own car or taking public transport.
And of course, there's always off season when you've got to develop the car as well. Uh, that's the fun <laughs> and part, and that's going to be a big part yeah, of it as so well. So that's you know, uh, restructuring your portfolio, presumably restructuring portfolio, back testing, mm-hmm. um, actually just having a look, a serious look at how we did last year, and then telling people this is how we did last year. It was good, bad, or indifferent. This is what we think we need to do to improve on that and make it better than than we did last year. Yeah. So yeah. A lot of work off the track as yeah. well. Invest to survive. <laughs> always wear your investment seatbelt. <laughs> okay, well, so looking at the off-season for an LIC or an LIT, do these things change over time and evolve over time? The nature of the LIC itself? As, yeah, the as strategy. A result of their, yeah, the strategy. Their, their the the charter that they might be working towards. Yeah. Um, again, it's important that uh, investors keep in touch with what's going on with the management. And I must say... Listed investment companies are very good on communication. There's a lot of information that the company or trust will actually send to investors on mm. a regular basis. So, and any of those changes to the underlying strategy is significant. So because they're listed on the ASX, they'll have an obligation under continuous disclosure to make sure the market and their investors are equally, in terms of timing, fully informed where it's a material change. So if they were to change the direction of what they intend to head, yes, there's a lot of work to do. And being shareholders, you have a vote. So you actually are not an investor, you're an owner. And when you an interesting mindset. So when you invest in a company, be it a listed investment company or BHP, you're taking a proportional holding as an owner. You are giving them your money as equity. That's what they call equities. Shares make it easier because it's your share of that business. That's exactly what it is. You're giving them your money. Uh, that varies a little too when you, when you actually invest alongside a managed fund or an ETF, you're an investor. You like their investment philosophy and where they're headed and the way they want to do things. So you're actually investing with them as opposed to being an owner in that fund. Ian Irvine, thank you very much for joining me today. As always, Phil, great pleasure. Thanks for listening to Shares for Beginners. You can find more at sharesforbeginners.com. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.